This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Literary Studies, a podcast with the New Books Network. My name is Brian Scott, and today we are joined by Professor Ian Almond. Ian is Professor of World Literature at Georgetown University in Qatar and author of six books, including Two Faiths, One Banner, When Muslims Marched with Christians Across Europe's Battleground, published in 2011 by Harvard University Press, and The Thought of Nirad C. Chowdhury, Islam, Empire, and Loss, published by Cambridge University Press in 2015. His work has been translated into 13 languages, and his most recent work, which we'll be discussing today, World Literature Decentered, Beyond the West Through Turkey, Mexico, and Bengal, was published this year by Rutledge. Welcome, Anne. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Of course. Um, Okay. So can you start off by saying something about your background, training, and how these current interests in world literature developed through your, uh, throughout your career, uh, and how these interests perhaps are linked to the, to the trajectory of your work? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I'm afraid I've had a bit of a sprawling academic background. Like, basically, I got a, uh, I, tr- I started out in English and American literature in Warwick, like a million years ago, um, University of Warwick, and uh, did a PhD in English lit uh, at Edinburgh University. Um, and and really, sort of, uh, after spend, uh, I, um. After spending a a year just backpacking around in Turkey, I I, I ended up spending um, about six years in Turkey, and that was really where, for the first time, I at the beginning, and um, I really sort of reflected on <clears throat> on on how little or how the various sort of stereotypes and uh, prejudices that that I found in my own British culture that I found about Turkey, um, and that's what I think sort of perhaps got me thinking about um, considering 
literature written outside the, the field that I had originally trained in, which was, like I say, English and American literature at undergraduate level. Um, and I guess from then on, because I spent most of my uh, adult life now really outside, outside of the UK, um, it's become a kind of default setting that I, uh, that I sort of um, gravitate towards um, either Turkish literature um, or the the field that I, I started to specialize in, which was um, South Asian literature. So I spent a year in Bihar um, in 2000 um, and just sort of, you know, just learning Hindi. And uh, I didn't want to be an armchair post-colonial critic, right? I think you're going to write about Indian literature, you'd get off your ass and, 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 and live in the country. So I did. Um, and I, I suppose sort of as I... As I read um, South Asian literature, I, I, I began to realize that there was this uh, this sort of very visible difference between uh, Anglophone and what they call Basha or local literature, sort of literatures written in languages other than English. So again, that was sort of constantly at the back of my mind, sort of this, this awareness that it was a kind of almost a two-tier system uh, for global literatures, you know, the, the writers that we read and then the writers that we read in translation. So I suppose those kinds of questions have always been um, in my mind, you know, this constant disparity between the lived experience, the lived phenomenological experience, for example, of the country you are in, and then going to another country and seeing it relayed back to you in 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 uh, in a completely alienating way, so that 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 very simple fact there of of the this gulf between the you know what is represented and and and, and the actual thing itself uh, was always in my mind, and I guess it's combined that with my own sort of politics. My politics have always been left, um, and you know, just an awareness of traveling now, and I'm not speaking in a literary context now, I'm just speaking quite generally, you know, constantly seeing the same problems, regardless of where you go, whether it's London, whether it's Lahore, whether it's Istanbul, whether it's uh, Liverpool, um, you know, you see the same sort of pockets of rich and the same sort of suburbs of the poor, the same sort of... Uh, the same sort of uh, bourgeois cosmopolitanisms, the same sort of like populist movements. Um, it did sort of make me think about the extent to which class and power and politics play a fundamental role, um, not just in the reception of literature, but quite possibly also in its production. And that's without sort of moving quite into a wholly materialist Marxist mode there, um, which is a couple, you know, it, it's it's probably uh, one step short of that. I'm, I still, uh, I, I'm not a, a materialist per se, um, but it definitely sort of uh, made me think about that as I started to teach world literature. So I started to teach world literature when I got a job in the US, which was in 2008. I started to teach in Atlanta, uh, in Georgia. And uh, as you know, what the world literature courses are a, are a huge 
phenomenon in the US. You know, that every university has one. You know, it's a standard default undergrad course. And that was like the first time that I, I thought about a term, which to be quite honest, I'd always sort of dismissed. The idea of a world literature, I'd always really sort of up to that uh, dismissed. Uh, I'd never really taken it seriously because um, it, it really seems so enormous as to be unthinkable. Um, and when I taught in the US, at least, I always taught it strategically as a way to get kids to think outside their own perspective. So for purely pedagogical reasons, I never taught any American texts and I never taught any European or British texts. Um, <clears throat> but then uh, it was just tr trying to get students to negotiate with some kind of uh, really having, you know, there was no white character, there was no Western character in the text that they were, they had to sort of empathize with with someone who was, you know, completely outside of their own cultural milieu, if you like. Uh, and I really sort of, at the time, I, I don't know now how I feel about it, but at the time I was really sort of uh, into the idea of self-decentering, you know, getting yourself, getting people to think outside of their own perspectives as something, uh, as one of the fundamental uh, goals of any sort of, uh, any sort of course in general, I think. Um, and it's interesting because as I teach, I've shifted now. After about five years, I moved to Qatar in the in the Middle East, and I teach now kids who, for the most part, ninety percent of the students I teach are, are come from non-Western countries, and I've really had to sort of modify that to some extent because I'm. It's no longer trying to persuade, trying to sort of get American kids to see how their other perspectives. Um, most of the students I know are, are fully familiar with, you know, their own local, um, whether they're Egyptian or Lebanese or, um, you know, Thai, or they're, they're, they're familiar with the kind of problem of, you know, the West's obsession with itself. Um, but I find one of the things which teaching teaching world literature in Qatar, one of the things which strikes me again and again uh, and it's relevant to the discussion we're going to have, um, is the way hegemony, Western hegemony, is is really sort of successfully reproducing itself in non-Western uh, students, in a non-Western generation. You do have a, a generation of kids growing up, um, certainly kids of elites, certainly kids from a certain upper 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 income group within non-Western countries like Qatar, like India, like Pakistan, um, who seem, for better or for worse, to be uh, getting a lot of their frameworks and a lot of their historical uh, background from, from Western contexts, from Western mainstream culture. Um, and that is, I guess, a, a cause for concern. So... And I never thought that would be the case. I didn't think I would be having to do the same job of explaining, for example, uh, the, 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 the drawbacks of a figure like Winston Churchill. I never thought I would be having to do that in a class in Qatar. I thought I'd have to do that in a, in a class in Britain or in the US. But I never thought I'd have to be explaining 
explaining why Netflix's representation of Winston Churchill <laughs> has some problems, right? In in so this is this is uh, I think this is a you know it's it's a consequence of our shrinking planet, right? That you know we think we think you know the planet's getting bigger, but in many ways it is it is beginning to get quite uh, smaller again. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'm wondering about my background. So that's basically where I am today, sort of. Uh, and and in terms of disciplines, like um, I have wandered through a number of disciplines. I guess I, I have a sort of real set of mixed feelings towards academia. Um, I don't. I don't. I'm not sure if I even really like us as a species. Um, we do tend to sort of acquire a, a certain vocabulary and a certain jargon, and then we fetishize it. And then, and nobody, anyone who speaks it in a slightly different dialect or in a slightly different linguistic register, is amateurish, or we reject because they don't. And particularly, like with you know, sociologists and economists and historians and uh, and literary, literary critics, you know, there's a, there's a there is a great deal of uh, disciplinary fetishism that takes place. So, uh, I I did try when I wrote this book. I, I did try to sort of write across those boundaries, but um, you, it is a bit, you know, you end up falling between two stools almost. Yeah, in trying to write for two or three disciplines, you end up sort of not being taken seriously by any of them, but. Um, it is a it is a frustration I have and continue to have. Um. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, um, and and that actually kind of touches on another uh, a question that I wanted to uh, to ask you later um, about. You know, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but um, about the the specific way that that you organized and, and framed frame your book, um, and that kind of reminded me of an interview that that I read with you where you talk about um, a lot of the concern has been around uh, language around um, the the kind of waning of, of different different languages and 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 you talk about um, genre rather than 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 language specifically and you talk about the the circulation of of these these um these genres as, as kind of containers of 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 values and, and of certain you know ways of, of being and 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 reproducing certain pasts and and futures and, and all of uh and and you know ways of ways of conceptualizing the world and and you know you talk about uh the the circulation even in in your own classes about 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 Netflix um, you know and and the kind of ubiquity ubiquity of those things um, but I want to I want to get to those questions later when I ask you about how you organize and frame the books around the motifs that you did um, but so so to kind of jump into the, to the book um so this is a, a really really wonderful achievement um as you know as we as we talked about before before we started recording um uh in challenging a range of currents in world literary theory uh and in foregrounding some of the foundational and often buried myths in thinking about world literature particularly in its canonized and anthologized forms 
the book methodologically is really an applied model of how we might begin to provincialize the West when thinking about and theorizing world literature. It subverts many of the dominant ways of thinking about world literature, most notably David Damrosh's idea of texts that gain in translation and circulation. So, um, and and I don't want to mischaracterize any of you know any of any of your ideas or or any of the, the impulses behind the book. So please feel free to to correct me um, or you know any of the ways that, that I've characterized it. But but if you can just explain uh, some of the I, some of the dominant ideas about world literature that you're working with and against and um, against. Uh, against these ideas or with these ideas as a backdrop, what does world literature mean to you if you, you know, have a, a kind of framework for it? Um, so um, I think so. the first thing to say there is that world literature is this, this um, sort of, uh, it appears to be in a kind of space at the moment. Like there's a, an, an agonistic space where you have a lot of, um, different forces trying to say different things, and and certainly, um, I think the pushback against um, people who believe in the possibility of a of a world literature canon, and the idea that there's um, that there's a um, an apolitical quality to the literary canon, which can be sort of separated from the messiness of, of, of violence and power and history. Um, and I'm, you know, this isn't just Damrosh, but this is, this is drawing on the, the whole idea of canonicity. Um, I think the pushback has, be, has really sort of started in, in, the, in the 2000s, um, uh, not just with uh, Emily Apter and with Amir Mufti, um, but there's this, this sort of awareness that the the extent to which world literature relied on on canons canon, canons c a n o n s but obviously the, <laughs> with canon involved um, and the extent to which it relied on nation states um, and the extent to which it is sort of woven somewhat into the history of empire. Um, really sort of assumes a topography, a global topography, a global cartography, um, which carries with it its own set of trajectories. And to try and pretend that this isn't the case and there's there's some kind of way in which we can decide what is good and what is, you know, extraordinary and what is genius without any of these considerations of power, which I think is probably the main criticism level that Damrush's, at least Damrush's old arguments. I don't, I haven't, I, I'm, uh, I think very recently he's been revising what he's said, but certainly the idea that, that you know, the, the greatness of a literary text is, is that which is, you know, passed in translation. Um, I, I think that's been one of the objections, right, that w w in, t in terms of world literature, uh, what we're seeing both with Apter and in a different way with Mufti um, is uh, simultaneously a historicizing of world literature and how world literature came to be. And then I think with Apter, a much more deconstructive, skeptical objection against the possibility of world literature in general. So I think, I think um, 
Apta seems to, uh, in her very Deridian book, um, really sort of seems to insist on the on a kind of X element in all texts which resist translation and which will forever undermine any possibility of of um, of a translated text. And which is uh, what I find interesting about Apta is that it does sort of beg the question, you know, do do we need to understand one another's cultures? Like, surely there are some things, there are some texts that we will have, we in each culture, right? Not just uh, we globally, but we in each culture. There are some texts which no one will ever really get the way we do, the way our community does. And why does that necessarily, is, is it, where does the imperative come that 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 we should feel or lament the fact that those texts don't really move outside other, into other people's cultures? Um, maybe there are some things which are really we're you know there are some for example as a British person to use a to use a, a first world example right there are some films which I I don't see why I don't really see why other cultures would need them like. I find them funny. There are some 50s British films which I find funny. I don't think there's any need for anybody else to try and understand them. Like, And, uh, you know, I'm, I, there are some in each culture, there may be sort of some elements of that culture which will only be understood by locals. And there is no... Why do we necessarily have to sort of lift that into, sign of, into some sort of like global... Um, sphere in which the original meaning would be completely gone, would be completely deleted. Um, so yeah, I mean, you have all those epistemological questions about world literature, but I think you know, with Mufti as well, you you are, you are seeing a kind of a post-colonial re a reemergence of post-colonial questions. Because because let's be honest, right? World literature. I would say in the 21st century has really taken the steam out of the post-colonial. You know, it, it, it just if the if the 80s and 90s were the age of the post-colonial in ascendance, yeah, this was the age in which suddenly um, all our literary conversations were internationalized, um, and we started reading Latin American and South Asian and African authors. Um, I think in many ways, one of the resentments against world literature is that it has been sort of, uh, I mean, I don't want to sound crude and call it the Empire Strikes Back, but it's definitely been a way in which uh, global conversations on international texts have been sort of reharmonized and brought back into a more uh, pal palatable setting. And these are this is one of the uh, objections, I think, one of the post-colonial objections against world literature, um, and I think uh, you, for me personally, it, we're veering between the two, right? Because on the one hand, we have a post-colonial aesthetic, which was I, th I felt unsatisfying because it constantly post-colonial with its with its prefix sort of. Um, constantly invokes the shadow of the thing you're trying to free yourself from. So I, I personally, even though I, I I started out sort of as a post-colonial scholar, I always hoped that the the term would be jettisoned because it it it, it had to be jettisoned, right? You couldn't endlessly to talk about twenty first century 
Indian literatures post-colonial seems to chain India to 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 an, uh, uh, paradoxically to a a past that it has it has left behind. But at the same time, the, the the world literature which is vaunted to replace it has brings all of these problems with it. Um, and in many ways, uh, I think it's I think it's correct to say that there are there's a kind of selective amnesia and uh, an unwillingness to, I mean, in world literature and to to really sort of acknowledge the hegemony of the West and to acknowledge um, the 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 smallness of Western countries. When you when you take a truly planetary perspective. The West really is just ten percent of the planet. It's a, it's a, an extremely small part of the planet, and even if the 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 obvious counter argument to that is always it's a naive thing to say, you're not taking into account the historical and geopolitical power of the West and its ability to form and and constitutively substantively change the. Self images of country, okay, fine, but still, you know, it's 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 a demographically tiny part of the planet, and it seems to me if we're gonna really talk about a global twenty first century literature, um, the first thing we're gonna have to do, as you said, is reprovincialize the West. We have to sort of, and it doesn't mean dismiss the Western countries. It doesn't mean, um, it doesn't mean. To be anti-Western, um, but it does mean to sort of acknowledge North America and Europe as as powerful players in a much much wider setting, um, and I don't see any signs of that at the moment. I don't see any signs of that. Certainly within, I should be very specific here, within American and European academia, I don't see any real sign that that is taking place that that we are interested in in this kind of conversation and, and perhaps there's no surprise there because of the material and institutional self-interest in self-propagation i get it but it does mean that when we talk about other cultures you know it's either about hybridity refugees you know that we we're locked in this kind of like refugee uh, approach to other people's cultures. Like we're interested in them insofar as some of those people came to our society and got a job. Do you know what I mean? It's it's an extremely <clears throat> narrow optic. But when you look at the kinds of prizes we award, um, we either award them on the basis of 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 some kind of migrant literature premise. Or alternatively, some kind of despotic, tyrannical, you know, brave free writer struggling against a regime premise. Like we have very, we have very narrow frameworks with when we look at sort of other countries, and I, I don't, I don't see anything. In, I'm being dismissive here now. I should, I should be careful. But uh, my feeling certainly is that that the the kind of the kind of uh, Circumstances and intellectual conditions by which a, a more open and decentered uh, this conversation about world literature might take place. Uh, I I don't know if I see that happening anytime soon. Um, yeah, and uh, that's um that actually reminds me of of you know the the kind of thought experiment that you have at the at the introduction of your book where 
where you you remove um, power and history from how literature is thought about um, and circulated and, and understood as kind of you know as I said as a thought experiment. So so I mean, would you say that that post-colonialism uh, dwells on you know perhaps dwells on and, and a kind of older model of of power and history, whereas you know, we might say that the world literature as it's theorized, at least, you know, in, in the kind of like, um, uh, big, um, you know, like, uh, schools and, 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 in kind of the, the, the popular theorists, like, like Damrosh and others, not to, you know, not to, to pick on him, but, um, he's kind of like the, you know, the, the the originator I, I guess it might be said of, of a certain type of thinking and you know that that kind of it, you know I, I don't want to be dismissive either but um but there is there is a sense um at least in in some of the criticism that world literature in its more most popular conceptualization might bury um power in history might so so you have on the one hand uh, post-colonial theory, which which kind of um, dwells on it, or 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 uses possibly dated ways of of understanding models of power and history, and then you have on the other hand um, uh, an elision of power and history. So so what does it what does it what does it do for world literature, uh, um, at least as as you understand it, um, to think about power and history? Um, and to kind of foreground it in how world literature might be be understood. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it would be great to have a synthesis, right? It would be great to have a synthesis whereby you have a, a world literature which is um, not just sort of concerned in seeking the the the, the best and finest minds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, you know, the sort of Matthew Arnold's touchstones of of, of, of literary greatness and so on. Um, but which really sort of does it in a, in a historically authentic way. So is is aware of the uh, the self mythologizing power of of Western countries and and this, I mean I'm not pretending it's easy because it does get tricky. Um, it gets tricky when you have writers who, to some extent who are great writers, but who have incorporated these Western frameworks. You know, I'm, the two I'm thinking of immediately would be Nirad Chowdhury and uh, Ahmed Hamdi Tampanar, the Turkish, the, one of the greatest Turkish writers of the 20th century. You know, Tampanar was a, was a bit of a Francophile. Um, you know, he really sort of, uh, and, and to some extent, when you read his work, there is a, there is a sort of degree of self-orientalizing uh, involved in his depictions of Istanbul. And Nira Chaudhuri was a notorious Anglophile. And, and that, that, that brings up the difficult question of like, what do you do with figures like that? If your commitment is to, to find a, quote, gen, in inverted commas, genuine or an authentic local voice um, but if uh, a part of some of those voices have been a consequence of successful ideological uh, formation yeah um, you have to sort of negotiate that and I think in many ways 
that is our problem at the moment that we what we have in the case of the west is a uh, what we have in the case of of global literature and global culture um is uh, probably about 15 western countries european european settler countries who uh, have have successfully installed their mythologies uh, around the planet and who are living off the long cultural memory of those violent installations you know we, we all know what big ben is we all know new york city you know this is a consequence of about 200 250 years of pretty successful ideological expansion um which is why you know we we you know we know about paris and we know new york and london but you know, no one's going to be sort of talking anytime soon about Kazakhstani literature or about you know Burkina Faso or about Paraguayan poetry right this is why we're talking about some countries rather than others um and i think it's very difficult to see how we reverse that or to i i have only crude solutions to that i don't know how within the conversations that we're having at the moment which uh, for many people just re- just involves getting the west to connect to some kind of other peripheral country or allowing the west to even worse connect other countries with always the west as a center point as an anchoring point of comparison i don't see how that's going to get us forward i think that that still that still keeps us chained to a very sort of uh 20th century way of thinking so what i what i try to do in the book is to and successfully or unsuccessfully i don't know but um i look i just sort of take three non-western regions and i i far as possible i try to ignore the west i try to find ways of talking across these three regions which doesn't involve uh western frameworks western approaches you know european or american theorists um i don't do it completely because i can't but um i tried to as honestly as possible to look at for example what a ghost story is in mexican literature when in you know i i i looked at i took the example of a ghost there's a a certain kind of ghost story which keeps recurring where a protagonist usually a male um goes into a, a haunted house or a haunted property uh and haunted usually by a female ghost and at some point they end up losing their identity to that ghost um and i was just interested in in how that recurred in three very very different and you you do find these stories in three very very different regions um and i tried to take up the challenge of analyzing and looking at that without necessarily uh using some sort of like western framework even though you know those kinds of stories um do occur also in 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 you know in english literature and in the us um but the challenge is that and 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 i think the challenge is is all the more difficult because in a way um ideology is very successful at not just at self mythologizing but then at concretizing that mythology 
it, it, so so these histories become congealed, if you like. They become hardened. Um, they become written stone, and and then it becomes even more difficult to imagine another way we could have written that, another way we might have looked around that, another way we might have talked about this, because all of the conversations that have t- taken place have then bred subsequent kinds of conversations, and a kind of uh, yeah, a kind of almost fossilizing has taken place. Um, so. So you chose to, you know, to, to organize the book around three uh, locations or, or, you know, areas of, of literature. Um, so what, so what made, I guess, what made you choose these areas specifically, um, and and how do they they link up, and and also what does that mean for for the overall project of of Decentering world literature, right? Um, so um, the three choices uh, are not uh, provocative. So there's no, they are provocative in the sense that they're combative. Like it's offering an alternative. But I'm not suggest I'm not suggesting that um, the uh, the West should be replaced by. <laughs> Uh, Mexican, Turkish, and Bengali literature, even though the the populations more or less uh, add out as the same. Um, but rather, I um, I mean, there was the one element in it was autobiographical, so that I, I can read all three languages, which I felt was really necessary if I was going to say anything even remotely authoritative about them. I, I felt I, I couldn't just work with translation. I had to sort of be able to read in all three languages. Um, and then, of course, I lived in two of those countries. Um, I'm saying country with Bengal, but obviously now it's West Bengal and Bangladesh. But I, I had experience, lived experience of two of those countries. And then with Mexico, um, I guess that was where I, I was the tourist. Uh, I had lived in Italy for years, so I never thought my Italian would come in useful. But um, I really did, you know. It's a, there's a there's a life lesson there. I thought, okay, whatever. And then uh, I was so happy because obviously Spanish takes just a, it's very very it accelerates it a great deal when you know Italian. Um, so Mexican literature was for me the challenge, and I would I spent a lot of time in Mexico on trips. Um, that was perhaps the region that I felt um, most of an outsider to. Um, but there, there is something interesting about these three regions. It wasn't just autobiographical. They're all regions which have had some kind of local hegemony at some point or continue to think of that. So obviously Turkey was, was an empire. It was an empire until about 1922. Um, and so it has the memory of power very definitely. Um, I would say the same with Mexico. I would say that Mexico certainly sees itself as being on the colonizing, even though obviously with Mexican literature it's such a difficult discourse because, you know, it's not just about Ladinos and indigenous, right? But um, there's certainly a sense in which Mexico has has uh, had a colonial attitude to the indigenous people they encountered, even though that's an extremely simplified way of talking about it. Uh, and I think in general as well, certainly with regards to Central America, if not all of Latin America, certainly with regards to Central America, Mexico and Mexican culture was, Mexican literature has always enjoyed a kind of local primacy. 
And then Bengala, perhaps uh, notoriously, uh, has always... Um, I mean, Indians obviously make jokes about this and that, but definitely there's a sense in which Calcutta always saw itself as the as the second city of empire. Um, and, you know, with Bengali elites, their legacy in the history of the Raj, um, to the extent in which some even saw themselves as co-ruling with the British and so on and so forth. So in all three cases, there's these interesting questions of power and influence. They were not they were not uninfluential local regions in themselves. Um, and then also there's a number of other things that really sort of uh, emerge when you look like the same. So, interestingly analogous uh, debates about language, you know, whether it's the Turkish language reforms, whether, you know, both the cleansing, if you like, of the Perso-Arabic-Turkish with more Ralaltaic words, um, whether in, in the, the whole sort of debates uh, in Bengal as well about language and, and in, about what kind of Bengali, you know, the Sanskritizing of Bengali, the re-Sanskritizing perhaps um, more accurately of, of Bengali and the, the separation into Jyotibasha and Shotobasha, the, the two the two different kinds of Bengali. Um, and then, of course, also sort of various language issues within Mexico and uh, the incorporation of indigenous words, the Mexicanizing of a, of a Castilian Spanish and so on. And elites I'm kind of curious about and uh, the way sort of all three regions are dominated by local metropolises, Mexico City and Istanbul and Calcutta, the constant tensions between elites and provincial provincial uh, provinces, um, religion versus secular disputes, I find quite interesting in all three. So in all three regions, you have quite sharp and long histories of tensions between conservador and liberal, or between layak and ulema, or um, uh, in Bengal. You know, you have this sort of long-running uh, series of tensions between sort of religious figures and, uh, I suppose, in the 19th century initially, um, uh, sort of more unitarian uh, figures like the Shoma Brahmaj, but then later on sort of Marxist intellectuals too. So I'm interested in those kinds of tensions within um, within each of the regions. And, um, and you mentioned about Warwick Research Group, but... Um, yeah, that was one of the things that emerged in looking overall, that you find sort of analogous dynamics at work. And I say very carefully analogous. They are context-saturated. But um, attitudes towards uh, the memory of violence, the memory of power, um, attitudes towards, um, towards women. I've got a chapter on femicide. Which looks at uh, which looks at sort of various texts, which really focus on the destruction of women, the destruction of a woman. Like each of these um, regions has a number of texts which are dedicated to uh, critically, you know, in a, in, a, in a written primarily by feminist writers, uh, but which are dedicated looking at the ways these societies destroy women, Psycho not just physically but psychologically, spiritually. Um, and 
you know, even things like, as I mentioned at the very uh, uh, before, sort of the um, the internalizing, you know, for example, Orientalisms of various kinds do are replicated and do flourish <laughs> within each of these regions. Now, even within Turkey, you you do get this strange internal reproduction of various Western Orientalisms. Um, uh, I mean, most obviously, Alhan Pamuk is 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 accused of this, but um, there are a number of very sort of subtle ways in which um, Turkish literature, in which each of these regional literatures do reflect and sort of inculcate certain certain Western ideas about them. So I, I guess it was I was interested in that, and this is where the, the discussion about what world literature is. Uh, does hinge on whether you feel there are a common set of economic and political material processes which are at work across the planet. Now, that that is really perhaps one of the key questions here. Yeah, if you don't, if you feel fundamentally that um, capitalism is not something ubiquitous, but rather each culture has intrinsically produces its own set of intrinsic irreducible dynamisms which can't easily be lifted out and explained um, in another context um, then you will you will disagree with the book because uh, I guess one of the things I feel um, is that for whatever it whatever it might be um, the experience, the global experience of capital um, and the global experience of the impact of capital uh, has been felt in increasingly uh, ubiquitous and uh, analogous ways, even in very, very different regions. And that's not a materialist reduction. It's not that there's no leeway given there for cultural context. Um, and even in sometimes irreducible, you know, there are sort of there's a moment in the book in on in the chapter on myth where I do acknowledge that you know this 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 cannot be brought across this this chapter doesn't work because the South Asian understanding of myth here is simply so different and its experience is so different from the other two examples I was working with, um, but for the most part you do seem to see the same mechanisms again and again. Um, and uh, that is what I found most interesting about this. Like that, that I deliberately, you know, found these examples which which do seem to sort of resemble one another. Whether it's the ghost story I just mentioned, um, whether it's the 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 adaptation of myth, it's really fascinating the way uh, each of these regions uh, reworks their own myths. With the same, you know, feminist or Marxist or nationalist agendas, and then produces the same sort of backlash, the same sort of counter uh, counter adaptations. Uh, you do find these recurring quite independently across these three regions. Um, so yeah, I mean, and in many ways, in our conversation here, we've got sort of two things going on, haven't we? Because on the one yeah. hand, we we're talking about world literature and and you know 
world the concept of world literature and what the future of the of world literature is. Um, but to be honest, for me, I, I'd never really that for me is a is a is a much more minor question. Like I don't really care about. Um, I don't know how excited you can get about a debate about terminology. Like it's it's you know it's just a word, right? But um, the much more important question is like, how are we going to talk about other people's cultures? How much are we going to talk about other people's cultures? Are we going to be able to talk about um, countries, national literatures, which are very different from our own? Uh, in ways which don't reduce them. Um, this was like, and and are there um, are there certain realities which are which are because of neoliberalism, you know, because of a much longer here history of capitalism. Are there certain economic realities which are emerging regardless of cultural context? Uh, these are the questions I was kind of interested in when I when I took on the book. Um, yeah, and I find I found that you know one of the most interesting, and and I mean there there's so many interesting and and uh, and um, uh, interesting and provocative uh, areas of of the book and and the way it's constructed. But I found that uh, specifically how you organized each chapter um, as a kind of comparative uh, examination around. Uh, you know, six motifs. So, and as you mentioned, um, so the hotel narrative, ghost stories, femicide, myth, uh, melancholy, and and the Orient. So you 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 mentioned that you deliberately chose these motifs, um, as you put it, uh, because they constitute the the being modern of this world, rather than so-called universal motifs, which you might come to you know come to expect in uh, in you know an, an examination of where literature or a, a kind of comparative um work such as love god death and and so on the things that are you know quote unquote universal um you chose a, a specific set of of different um motifs that that suggests uh, uh, you know different lineages and and a different um understanding of of what it means to be a subject um, in in you know this world and how um, and and I find I found that really refreshing and and fascinating because they kind of centralize or, or center on the the historical processes and, and contingencies and and foreground um, and I, I don't know if this is you know, a fitting term, but but what might be called something like comparative modernities or or something like that. Um, uh, so, I mean, I, I was gonna gonna ask you about those choices specifically, and and you know, you already you already touched on them a bit, but but if you could say a little bit more about about that the choice you made that that organizational choice, and also how how those motifs that you focus on kind of tr a challenge or trouble. Um, so such as like the, the Orient or Orientalism, um, those terms as they're, as they're kind of understood more broadly. So, so 
you know, as you mentioned, they, each of those cultures have their own kind of, um, Orientalism or, or their, their own sort of, um, uh, attitudes that, that I think really trouble the concept of, you know, the Orient or, or melancholy, um, so if you could just say something about the, the choices and and what those choices might mean for how the the motifs or the, the terms are understood. Um like the choices of texts or the choices of motifs, uh, right? The choices of of mo- motifs. Yeah. Um Yeah. Um I mean I as you said like I I chose deliberately oblique motifs because I thought I mean, to be really honest, I just thought it would be really boring just to, you know, love, death, God, right? <laughs> um, I didn't want to do that. I, and and also because of um, I was interested in ideology, um, and particularly, obviously, ideology, successful ideology is always oblique, right? It's always, uh, it, it's never explicit. It's never visible or tangible. The most successful ideology is always secreted, if you like. Um, so that was the, the reason why I, I, I chose, for example, something like the hotel, because, um, the hotel is a, the, the hotel narrative seems to me to be a very interesting way of, uh, illuminating and illustrating, um, the, the, the coincidence of modernity and colonialism. Right, like you know, if you you know as well as I do, right, you go around these cities like Mumbai and and Calcutta and uh, all of the big hotels, especially the famous, um, the older five star hotels, are all sort of you know empire hotel or that they have all of these colonial names. So mm-hmm. I was really intrigued in the in the in the way something like a hotel narrative can. Um, offer sort of four or five ways of looking at a subject you know, in, in overlapping, uh, including um, something we haven't mentioned to now, which would be the sort of psychoanalytical drives of the body. So there, there's something, so I, 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 what strikes me in the, in the hotel narratives I look at is that they are all involved somehow death. They all have, the, the hotel stories I look at, I look at the Yusuf Gan's Motherland Hotel, I look at Hotel de Fe by Guillermo Mafadanelli, um, I look at uh, Chao Ringi by Shankar, like there's all these sort of very different hotel narratives, but they all involve um, some kind of death. There's some sort of like relationship between death and the, the hotel in literature. Um, and and I, I felt that was a, a a really interesting comment on the way um, societies can, um, if we assume, if we if we consider the the hotel to be a a kind of law proof space, a place where you buy some kind of isolation from your community and from your the mores of your culture yeah and hotels have this kind of association with iniquity and transgression right you know you have your extramarital affairs or your prostitutes or you drink your alcohol in a hotel and so on um the the hotel the the death the death in the hotel would be a kind of conservative subtext it would be a mechanism by which you you punish 
your characters for transgressing. Um, so I, I was really, that was one of the reasons why I, I gravitated towards oblique things like this, because they, they manifest the ideology uh, of, a, of a society in, in very sort of oblique ways, in very sort of subtle ways. Um, and I, I guess uh, we're almost getting Zizek in here because I, I, I do feel that there is, there is something about... Um, I, I felt when I was writing the book that I was looking at these, these uh, three symbolic orders that um, when I was looking at these various, it was interesting to see in these three very different regions, uh, moments of self-censor and moments of repression, and then moments of kind of obscene expression that was going on in all three. Um, and I was intrigued by that. And it was almost, a, you know, it was, it was, on the one hand, I'm tempted to say it was almost a confirmation but it was it was kind of a confirmation of what I was planning to find. You know, there's something slightly false about that. Um, and I'm being very honest in the interview now. Like, um, I chose the examples with this in mind. It wasn't. Um, so I guess the the counter argument to what I'm saying would be that there is, um, and this is the kind of thing which someone like Waichi Dimmock would say, uh, or Emily Apter for that matter. Is that there is there is stuff, literally sort of stuff that falls away, right? There is various texts across these three regions which couldn't possibly have been incorporated into the book because they don't have counterparts in the other two regions. And I think that is where the whole alternative modernities argument would come in, that there are simply irreducible, idiosyncratic. Uh, untranslatable elements that persist in these regions, um, and and that that was really my only reservation. That was really my only distance with the Warwick Research Group, who uh, I admire a great deal. I read their I read their book. I would say about two thirds of the way in while I was writing my own, so. I was only able to catch it at the end, um, but uh, I. The only reservation I would have is that um, I do agree that you know, sort of literature is the the is the coding of of capitalism. Is capitalism coding the subject? I thought that was a really great way of putting it, um, but I I guess I I do feel that however much these these. Uh, these new modernities begin, um, the kind of modernities which capitalism has ushered in, yeah, the kind of new subjecthood which capitalism has ushered into all of these regions begins. Um, I guess I was less convinced that, that than the Warwick Research Group that these modernities necessarily escape their circumstantial beginnings. I, th I felt that the, the, the ghosts of these various cultural contexts continue to sort of dog any sort of like um any sort of clear uh development of of a of a of a modern subject so in the case of myth for example um what emerged was that um there was just something 
um, there was just something very different about the way Bengali writers, uh, and I don't have the expertise to talk about Gujarat or UP, or I can only, but um, the way Bengali writers uh, very early on um, dealt with uh, the transgressive adaptations of their texts, of their myths. Um, and you have a, in the case of Bengal, you have a satire of myth, you know, which goes back, you know, a good 300 years. So, you know, in contrast to, to um, Turkey and Mexico, where, you know, satirizing, satirizing and ridiculing uh, sacred narratives um, you know, it was a relatively modern gesture, right? You know, it's taking place in the closing decades of the 19th century. Um, whereas uh, in Bengal, there's something... Uh, what what, emer- what struck me, and I can't claim to be a, an expert on sort of Bengali... Uh, Bengali's notions of the sacred, yeah, the specific... But what struck me was that there was a just a different relationship between um, the sacred and the transgressive uh, in Bengali poetry. When you have Bengali poetry from the middle of the 18th century offering parodic descriptions of, of Kali, of Durga, as some kind of teenage brat shaking her hips, um, it seems to me that there's a there's a very different relationship between the sacred and the profane at work there, without essentializing, um, which couldn't be carried over into Turkish the the Turkish or or Mexican equivalents. So you know there were nuggets like that, undigestible nuggets that I bumped into um, while I while I wrote the book. If this makes sense, I hope I'm not rambling. Yeah. <laughs> But, <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Uh, no, I was just, I was thinking of, um, you know, particularly your, your chapters on, you know, the, the ghost story and, and the, the way that those writers negotiate, you know, rep- repressed memories and, um, just kind of ghostly visions of, of empire and, and, and all of that. And, and, um, you know, just, I think you it, mentioned melancholy as well, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that what I found curious about melancholy was that you know on the one hand melancholy strikes as a as a completely transhistorical you know as it's a we we feel it's a a feeling as as old as Gilgamesh right there's something spiritual and utterly eternal about melancholy but um, what I was curious what I was interested in was the way melancholy had acquired a very neoliberal tone. In some of the you know late twentieth century literature, you, you, you saw kind of, and I, I really sort of felt you know I was looking at Amitav Ghosh, uh, I was looking I think at um, Orhan Pamuk, at um, I think it was Ignacio Padilla, but the, you have lots of sort of post ideological, uh, wandering melancholy protagonists um, who are. Who are lost in the world, Heidegger's geworfen in, in in the world. They're thrown into the world. They don't have any ideology. They're not communists, or they're not even capitalists anymore. But it's all framed as well within a kind of 
uh, obsession with with brand culture and markets and you know the the end of any sort of belief that we can believe in sort of Fuk- fukuyama's uh new man so to speak uh, i was curious how something as eternal and spiritual and melancholy actually got infused with a very specific set of economic and material inflections and that that for me sort of like ran across all three um all three regions and because it was uh, relatively contemporary literature um it does sort of bolster the argument that the the the, the closer you come to the present it is quite possible that we're seeing a kind of convergence um a kind of convergence of themes as each you know each each national literature in its own way tries to grapple with the um with the secularizing of its society with the rich rich poor divides that are emerging with the massive urbanizations that are taking place with the privatizations and the the uh as uh as Claudio Lomnitz calls it, the uh, the secularization is the, the the theocide of the state, right? The the idea that the the death of the state is the second death of God that we're now experiencing. You know, all of these various ways in which these different different literatures are trying to cope with this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I know we're we're kind of you know running out of time a little bit, but, but I did want to ask you, um, uh, because many of our listeners are, are not only readers and researchers, but also many are, are you know, teachers in, in higher education. So, and I'm not sure if, you know, where you are now, if, if you primarily um, teach world literature, I, I kind of assume that, that that's, you know, kind of your, uh, the areas in, in which you you teach, but um, uh, I wanted to, to ask you how you approach world literature in the classroom, which is you know something that you, you touched on at the beginning a little bit, but but how you might emphasize some of the the points that are made in the book, or or encourage as you as you explain it um, the radical democratization of world literature. So so what does this look like? If you can give us a glimpse of of what this might look like in in a classroom setting, um, yeah. So uh, usually, I I've you see the, the the big problem here is that like you have fourteen weeks, which sounds like a lot, but but um, to try and get everything across is very difficult. So um, what I've done in the past is more or less the pattern of the book. Like I've taken something, I've I've usually taken a device, like like the ghost story or like femicide, and I've got the students to read three um, different uh, texts from three different regions. Um, sorry, I'm being shamelessly uh, anti-Western here, but I I've I've made the decision not to teach any American or British texts. <laughs> Maybe that's. <laughs> I'm not a. Rem- I'm not one of these diehard remainers. Okay, I, I, but I, I, you know, I don't mind teaching a, a, a European text. But I, I'm just sick of. I just think British and American culture is overrepresented. Um, and our kids, our kids. I mean, you know, like they're they're growing up with this stuff now, and um, I don't feel any. 
and I, you know, I love English lit, and you know, I, I don't just love English poetry, but I think my, I think that my, my favorite fiction uh, is quite possibly uh, contemporary American fiction. I think there's some amazing stuff going on in, in, you know, um, joy, joy. Oh, I'm, I'm blanking all the names now, but there's so much great short fiction being written in the U.S. at the moment. Um, but I don't teach it. I refuse to teach it. And I refuse to teach any English literature. Uh, I'm just teaching. I want these kids to, you know, they're, they're, there's so much amazing, you know, so many amazing, you know, Bengali stories, so much Mexican, amazing Mexican fiction going on. And cinema, I always teach a, a dose of cinema with it. So there's just so much out there that that is just as good. But, you know, the many of our students, particularly here in Education City, by the very nature of having this Western American campus, we're just being ushered into this kind of Anglo-American direction. Um, so I, I do teach a lot of, uh, I, I do try and teach um, generally sort of Latin American, Middle Eastern and um, South Asian uh, literature. And... It, it does surprise me the extent to which even our Qatari students are, are sort of relatively ignorant about other Arab countries. Um, I don't know what kind of education system that reflects, but um, it surprises me. Like I show some, I've showed some Egyptian clips from Egyptian cinema, and they are struggling to sort of follow all of the context, you know. And and I have, I have students who say. Uh, who are surprised at the idea of Arab Christians. I have students who were kind of surprised to hear that there was something, you know, Arab Christians, you know, and so on and so forth. Like so, and we haven't really talked about that, but the whole, the whole way in which each, each of these regions, to some extent, is is uneasy with with various aspects of its multicultural past. Um, certainly, in the case of Turkey and Mexico, I think more so than any. Um, so anyway, like, like that's what I try and do. I, I get it. I, I, I try and sort of, you know, because in the end, I don't know if there's necessarily one, you know, you can't really talk about this in a kind of quantitative way, right? I mean, you, it's not that there's one good way or one, but uh, there's certainly things I, I don't do. Um, and one of them is I, I try to avoid literature written in English, which again does a complete it's it's an injustice to writers like Mosin Hamid and um you know Salman Rushdie and you know Juno Diaz and so on. Like it is an injustice, I agree. Um but for the purposes of getting people to to sort of move into the mindsets of other cultures, uh I, I do sort of primarily teach text and translation. Um, and short fiction, I find just pedagogically short fiction is is just uh, it's so hard to get our kids to concentrate on on novels. You just you, they just can't finish them. I mean, I sound like an old fogey now, but you they it's really it's a struggle. So, but I find short stories are are much much more 
effective at seducing cultures into seducing students into although and that's not a word nowadays we should use but bringing <laughs> bringing students into uh encounters with other cultures um that really is sort of like for me the most effective way sort of short fiction poetry and cinema but i don't teach any long novels well that about wraps up the interview Thank you to our listeners for joining us and for listening to the New Books and Literary Studies podcast. And thank you so much, Anne, for taking the time to talk with us. And congratulations on the publication of this wonderful book.